Hello, and welcome to the Engineers Collective, the podcast by New Civil Engineer. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and share this podcast with your colleagues. It's free to download on all podcast sites, or you can listen at newcivilengineer.com forward slash podcast. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. Around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to accelerate project delivery and improve asset performance for the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment. Together, we are Advancing Infrastructure. Welcome to this latest episode of the Engineers Collective. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer. And in a moment, I'm going to be talking about aspirational project ideas and concepts of mega projects with our head of content and engagement, Rob Organ, and reporter Catherine Kennedy. Then a bit later, our features editor, Nadine Badu, will be joining me to look at what the future holds for highways maintenance and the role of artificial intelligence to automate road assessments with two special guests. So hello, Rob. Hi, Claire. And hello, Catherine. Hi, Claire. Hello. Well, so far this year, it feels a bit like Groundhog Day with another lockdown and us all still working from home. But I do wonder whether our audience has been inspired recently by our coverage of ambitious project plans. And there have been some of our most read stories online so far this year. And they really do give you something to look forward to. Catherine, I guess the one we've heard about in a few guises before, but seems to be gaining traction, is the Northern Ireland to Scotland fixed link. You've been following this one for a while, Catherine, and not just because you're working from home in Northern Ireland right now. Can you tell us a little bit about what's developed recently on that? Yeah, so I suppose when I, well, I was going to say when I come back to London, I could be coming across a bridge or through a tunnel, but actually, no, that would be a very fast turnaround, so maybe not. But yeah, there has been a lot of chat um, recently about it, largely because different groups have been sending in their submissions to the Union Connectivity Review, which basically is going to look at how transport links can be improved um, throughout Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. So the High Speed Rail Group, as one example, they've suggested an Irish Sea Rail Tunnel um, with connecting rail links to Carlisle and Belfast. Um, and then similarly, Green Gauge 21, they've suggested a Scotland-Northern Ireland tunnel, and they've kind of compared that to the Euro tunnel between England and France and said it could have similar capabilities. So there's a lot of a lot of support for a tunnel at the minute. The idea obviously initially came from Boris Johnson, I think in 2019, um, with the idea for a bridge. And since then, the merits of, of both have been debated. So um, a lot of support for a tunnel, but summer 2021 is when that review will be published. So it'll be good to see what they make of the different suggestions. So are there ideas about whether it be a bore tunnel or a submerged, immersed tunnel or something like that? Well, there's actually so a separate thing, a team from Harriet Watt University, they suggested what they call a submerged floating tube bridge, which would be anchored to the sea bed and then tethered to these pontoons on the surface. And I think they had said it could either be for for rail or for cars to drive through. So there's a few different ideas floating about. There's lots of big engineering ideas there, definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I've been looking at uh, another rail tunnel in Scotland as well. So um, the Scottish Green Party published a report called Rail for All, which is a £22 billion investment programme for the rail network in Scotland to really focus on connectivity. They see it central to driving the carbon net zero project in Scotland. 
But central to that was a tunnel below the Firth of Forth, which would be a twin bore 14 and a half kilometre long tunnel between Abbey Hill to Seafields, between Kinghorn and Kirkcaldy, passing under Leith. The tunnel proposal is claimed to be essential to easing the bottleneck around Edinburgh's Haymarket station, which apparently affects the whole network. So that's going to be quite an interesting one to watch. I mean, tunnelling specialists, as I said, it's technically feasible to do. And tunnelling was considered when planning work for the new road crossing, which is now the Queen's Ferry Bridge, was considered. But I guess at a cost of £4 billion to £6 billion, it is, is a really expensive option. But there have been some new ideas put forward for HS2 too, haven't there, Catherine? Yeah, so really off the back of the National Infrastructure Commission's Real Needs Assessment, um, these have come. So it was published in December and contained this analysis of five different options for real investment. And from that, actually, kind of suggestions have come that the plans for stations should be rethought slightly in places like Manchester and Leeds. So the current plans are for terminus stations in both cities, but the report says that through stations offer better connectivity, capacity and also efficiency in city centres. So it's it's an interesting one. Um, Alistair Letzner of Expedition Engineering, he has said that building terminus stations in both places would actually repeat problems caused by railway planning in the 19th century when Manchester and Leeds had terminus stations and those were then replaced by through stations. So it seems like potentially is that problem not being dealt with if terminus stations are being planned. So it's an interesting an interesting discussion. It's all about planning for the future, not just thinking about what we need now, but what future generations would need as well. So I guess that's that's where you perhaps come on to talking about the Bakerloo line extension and Crossrail too. I mean, they're aspirational projects, I suppose, in their own right. And they'd be great if they were delivered, but like a lot of these schemes, there's a real cost challenge. Rob, you've been looking at Crossrail too in a bit more detail recently, haven't you? Yeah, so um, I think... Everyone is well aware of Transport for London's uh, funding uh, issues that they've had over the last year. They've uh, received is it two or three bailouts from government now. I think it's just the two so far, isn't it? And then that money's only takes us up till March. I'm sure we'll have another round of political posturing until a deal is brokered again. But in the short term, projects such as Crossrail 2 and Bakerloo line extension, um, the development work for those have been wound down. And and TfL have said that they're unrealistically going to be able to afford them before the 2030s. Although they are they are stressing the point that both schemes are still very much needed and very much wanted. It is just, as you said, simply a case of not being able to afford them at the moment. But some figures we've uncovered uh, in the last week have actually showed the amount of work that's already gone into to these schemes, Crossrail 2 in particular. So there's already been £115 million paid out, £83 million going to like consultants to to draw up development of the route and look at potential stations and and how it would connect in with the existing London Underground and with network rails infrastructure so so yeah a lot of work's already gone in on it on, on it but it, it doesn't look like that'll be getting underway anytime soon unfortunately unless unless the TfL's finances suddenly pick up then they do seem keen to to bring it forward bring it back online as soon as possible. I guess that money that's already been invested in consultancy fees won't be wasted, though, if they can actually bring the project forward later on. It's just a case of it's mossballed for the moment. Yeah, exactly. It, it does, it's not work that will, will go and sit in a drawer and never be looked at again. 
if only ever TfL get the money or the go ahead to restart the projects, then then they obviously can draw on those reports already. And uh, the land for both Crossrail 2 and the Bakerloo line extension has been safeguarded. So it's not like a, a whole new route will have to be devised or anything, which is encouraging uh, in terms of future proofing and future planning. But it is still a, an enormous amount of money to have been spent to, in the short term, lead to nothing. But yeah, like you said, it's not been wasted. Let's let's put a positive spin on it for yeah. the future. It, is there ready for future time? So talking about another project that looked like it wasn't going to happen, but now could, and I suppose another major project for the industry would be Heathrow's third runway. Last February, it looked like it, that was completely off the table with the court ruling that the National Airport's policy statement went against the Paris Agreement. But there's a bit of a U-turn on that in December, wasn't there, Catherine? Yeah, so December, the Supreme Court lifted that ban on the the plans for the third runway. Um, as you said, initially it was blocked um, in February because of the climate concerns. And I suppose having said that, the ban has been lifted, but different opponents are still saying, you know, Friends of the Earth, for example, they're saying it's still far from certain and that those climate concerns need to be addressed at the planning stage. So it is still a bit of a, a wait and see on that, I think. And the the discussion around airport expansions and climate change is definitely not slowing down. And the um, the Committee on Climate Change, for example, they published their sixth carbon budget recently, and it said that no net increase in UK airport capacity can happen if emissions from flying are going to be cut to net zero by 2050. So they're saying an increase at one airport needs to be matched by restrictions at others and that obviously has implications for Heathrow plans for I mean discussions are still ongoing about Gatwick and the Stansted inquiry started this month as well so that's the big question really whether airport expansion and climate commitments are compatible or not and how much low carbon aviation ideas can make a difference. I guess it's an area where we're going to be covering that quite a bit in the podcast in this year, looking yeah. at that, because it's an ongoing issue, isn't it? Energy is another area where thinking big is needed to move away from burning fossil fuels and deliver the energy that we need to power electric cars and rail electrification schemes. The Energy White Paper was published late last year as well. So what does that mean for the industry in terms of new projects? Rob, you've been following that one, haven't you? Yeah, so the, the Energy White Paper... Uh, like you said, it was published just before Christmas, um, along with everything else we've discussed um, to keep us nice and busy when we were all all dreaming of our our lockdown Christmases. But yeah, so the Energy White Paper, uh, it largely contained uh, pledges made in Boris Johnson's 10-point plan to decarbonise the UK's transport and energy systems. Um, like you say, some money is going towards electric vehicle infrastructure, a lot of money is going towards renewable energy. Wind in particular has been backed quite strongly. But there, there's also support for, for nuclear projects as well, both big and small. And I know, Catherine, you've you've delved into that a bit more. So I'll, I'll pass on to you to sort of round up what was in the energy white paper and what the implications are for, for the nuclear industry. Yeah, so it looks like it will be Wilva or Sizewell, one or the other, rather than both in terms of nuclear projects. And as part of the Energy White Paper coming out, the government said it was considering a new deal to help EDF potentially finance Sizewell. Um, so that might include taking a direct stake 
and making taxpayers liable for cost overruns. So that was announced at the same time as the energy white paper. So potentially looking like Sizewell was moving forward. And I think, Claire, as well, you know, there was there was a proposal to use the Wilva site for something else, potentially. Yeah, it's not actually on the Wilva site. It's close to Wilva, but there's a plan to put a small nuclear reactor project there. So it's on the different sites nearby, but it would obviously make good use of the local skills from nuclear. But this one's a bit different. It's a combined SMR with wind power, which will also generate hydrogen. And the company behind it reckoned they could develop a whole network of those around the UK, and that would be a more efficient way of using nuclear than having big mega projects, and it could be delivered much more quickly too. So it's been an interesting one to watch and see how that develops. And there's some certainly interesting projects being developed all around the UK, but innovation isn't just happening on new projects. It's helping to maintain our existing infrastructure too, specifically the use of robotics in the field of highway maintenance. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of their going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace of possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going digital. I'm joined now by NCU's Features Editor Nadine Badu and our special guests, FM Conway Consultancy Director John Holliday and Robotics Senior Partner for Success Lead Stu Frick, who have been working together to use road surface assessment technology to develop highway management plans. Stu's role is to develop and grow relationships with civil engineering partners, as well as assisting in the usage of robotics data to create pavement management plans. Stu has also studied the traditional methods of pavement analysis and preservation to better understand how new technologies can be used by civil and pavement engineers. Having worked at all levels of robotics, from quality control to marketing, Stu brings a thorough knowledge of the company and employs his experience to grow robotics partnerships and the usage of new technologies in pavement preservation. John is an experienced highways engineer who's been divisional director with FM Conway since 2010 and currently leads the business's in-house consultancy team who work in collaboration with local authorities across London and the south of England to optimise planned preventative maintenance enhance the wider public realm. John was instrumental in bringing robotics to the UK and to date his team surveyed more than 3,000 kilometres of road on behalf of six highways authorities, including Highways England, Transport for London and City of Westminster. So welcome to the Engineers Collective to both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Great. So not all of our listeners are going to be familiar with how road maintenance is planned and delivered. Many will know that when a pothole appears, eventually it gets repaired, but maybe not aware of kind of the work that goes on behind the scenes. So can you start us off by talking about the conventional approach to planning road maintenance and assessing pavement condition? Well, there's two two elements to it, really. Um, the expensive way is reactive maintenance, uh, where, as you say, an example is a pothole. We will then get a gang that's got to be there within a certain duration, an hour or two hours, and obviously that's not very efficient. They tend to be uh, found by doing safety inspections. But probably the better way is planned maintenance, which is really where we we try and use robotics. Uh, Traditionally in the UK, there's a a system called UK PMS, which is UK Pavement Management Systems. And that is a, a way of building up to find out what the condition of your roads are. I think some parts of that survey are very good. They use a scanner system, which is a van that uh, will go over the highway and do a laser scan, do some high-resolution images. 
and I think that works very well. I think the the weak link is still been done for years. There's two parts. There's a course visual inspection, CVI we call it, which is basically someone driving the routes and making notes and understanding where the defects are. And then a detailed visual inspection, which tends to be walked, so it's quite slow, um, but does the job. We, we found both of those inconsistent. I think they're very subjective. You get lots of different inspectors going out and they're all going to give slightly different scores. So we were looking for something that was a bit more consistent because what we want to do is an inspection every year or every six months and know that um, the condition is consistent. Uh, an example where it hasn't worked is we, we used a different supplier uh, using the, the DVIs and got a very different score in Westminster, which suggested that the network had, something had gone terribly wrong, whereas in fact it hadn't. It was just perception that different types of inspectors had gone out and done it differently. So really that, that's how it's done at the moment. So yeah, obviously we were looking for something different. So what are the key differences that robotics brings to planning this work? Really, as, as I've just sort of touched upon, it's perception. I think really when it's done by human, everyone will do it differently. You know, if I and Stu and other highway engineers went out, we'd all come back with slightly different assessments and different views on what that, that network's like. I mean, there is guidance, but because there's a human at the end of that guidance, it, it's not consistent. Whereas using a computer, you know, the, the joke is computers say no, it will be a consistent um, score and it will tell you exactly how it scored it. And then a year later, it will do it exactly the same way. So then you can assess that your highway, your network has either got better, it's got worse, and then you can make informed decisions you know, based on that. So, Stu, can you tell us how the artificial intelligence technology behind the system actually works, please? Yeah, absolutely. So the main basis of the technology is something called machine vision and machine learning. So uh, the process of that is essentially you want to be able to train a computer to be able to recognize something within an image on a consistent basis. So in this case, it's looking for various types of distresses on a road that are indicative of certain types of damage. And uh, the basis that it's using for this is cell phone imagery. So we use cell phone cameras to pick up images of roads, then we feed it through a computer program and are telling it, you know, show us how bad this is based on the distresses that you see. So the process to get to that point is you essentially have a blank slate uh, sometimes, you know, you could even think of it as like trying to train somebody to look at roads and be able to recognize them, except that this person is able to replicate that work better than a human might be able to. So the way that you do that is by feeding it marked images. So um, there's a lot of databases of road imagery that's available uh, in the public domain. So you can take that you can mark certain areas that have different types of distresses, you know, circle something on an image and say, this is what a pothole looks like and show it to the computer program. It's then able to kind of take that information in and then be able to apply it to future images that it sees where it says, okay, you know, I've seen a pothole before. I know what kind of patterns within the pixels will be present if there's a pothole here. So I'm able, I'm able to apply that to a new image. And, you know, of course, it needs more information than just one image showing what a pothole is. That process is repeated millions of times across different types of distresses so that it can independently be able to, to uh, identify what types of distresses are present within the image. Um, of course, there's a lot more complexities to that on the back end of layering different types of models that are able to identify different things, um, such as, you know, where the limits of the road start and end, 
uh, what type of uh, what type of pavement it's looking at, you know, having different uh, parameters for assessment of concrete versus asphalt, and being able to fine tune certain aspects of it as well. But on the on the top level, it's being able to identify distresses that are present within the road and compile them into a singular rating based on images of those distresses they had seen before. So when was the system first developed and how widely is it currently used? So the system was first developed uh, for commercial use in uh, late 2016, early 2017 was when it first came onto the market. Um, The initial research and development of the technology was going on for uh, a good time before then, but that was kind of when, you know, it, it came into the world. In terms of the amount of use that it sees, so our primary marketplaces are in the US and the UK. Uh, although we've worked in over a dozen different countries across the world, uh, and within the US, we've assessed around 250 to 300 different local uh, communities. And within the UK, we've done, how many, how many boroughs of London have we done now, John? Well, I was going to come on to that. I think in the intro, six was mentioned, but I've got seven written down here. So we must have added one since we, we sent that in. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I suppose so. Um, so, yeah, we've done quite a bit of work in London and uh, in the surrounding highway networks. And then within the U.S., uh, many different cities and local municipalities and some uh, state authorities as well. And, and can you give us some examples of specific projects where the technology has been used? Yeah, absolutely. So in the U.S., some of our more successful projects were in uh, the city of Detroit as one of the largest networks that we've assessed, uh, South Bend, Indiana, and quite a bit of work up in the Northeast in New England. Um, Manchester, New Hampshire, and Warwick, Rhode Island are another two major cities that we've done recently. Although I'm sure John can speak a little bit more to the U.K. clientele that we have. So, John, can you tell us where you've used the technology so far and what it's meant for planning of your work as well? Yes, um, as I just mentioned, there are seven local authorities at the moment. So I think probably the key one, Transport for London. Obviously, we're doing all the strategic uh, network in, in London. Uh, Westminster City Council, very urban environment, uh, so quite different networks. Quite a few of the London boroughs that we, we Conway's work with, so Croydon, uh, Hammersmith and Fulham, Merton. We've also done a, a small DBFO, which is Highways England network up at Alice Sheppey. Uh, so again, very different motorway environments, and yeah, it's been successful in in all these different uh, genres. Uh, in terms of what it's meant in terms of planning, really, again, going back to the earlier statements, I think it's just having very you know, confidence uh, in the data, and you know, year on year, it's going to tell you your network's getting better, it's getting worse, and that allows good decision making, and uh, you know, we you know we can take the planning through with that to surety. So when it comes to completing any any repairs, how does the data from robotics actually improve that? Well, I think, again, the surety is important. But another aspect is there's a very simple scoring system that's one to five, five being it's in very poor condition through to one being it's been recently resurfaced. But I think probably the interesting bit is where it's a three. So it's it's not quite failed, but it's starting to show signs of distress. There we can start looking at using different treatments and hopefully, you know, prolong the life of that network. So I think that's quite a powerful use. So it's not either it's in very good nick or it's failed terribly. We can, you know, we can intervene sort of somewhere between the two. uh, And as I say, prolong the life of the network, which has got to be an efficient way of working. So if it gets a scoring of three, would you go back and do more regular surveys just to keep on top of what's happening there? 
It's yeah, we, we'd assess it because yeah, if it's a one or a two, probably you know it, it would look after itself probably for you know quite a few years. But the three is where it's starting to show signs of fatigue. So yeah, we would monitor it. But you know there are things like surface dressing or you know there's various things, rhino patch, where we can go and do some intervention that will, as I say, rather than just rip it up and put a new one down, we can you know, keep that, that, that road working for, you know, three, four, five extra years. And so what are some of the key benefits you've been able to deliver for the client? You know, have you been able to deliver work in a more cost-effective manner as a result? Yes, I think so. Again, going back to, you know, rather than just being a traditional, let's, when you know, we've got X many million pounds, let's just resurface the roads. Let's try and eke out some efficiencies and find a, a cheaper treatment per square metre. Uh, and, you know, that will benefit that you can treat a, a bigger percentage of the network. So, yeah, obviously it gives benefits to, to, to the client that they, they're keeping that network in a better condition without having to, you know, either it's resurface or don't resurface. So, yeah, somewhere in between definitely does um, offer, offer value. And, and what kind of challenges did you experience when adopting the technology or was it all kind of pretty straightforward? No, well, there's actually a couple of interesting ones in the UK. Uh, we, we use material hot rolled asphalt uh, where the asphalt's put down and then we, we drop chips on it and then the chips are rolled in. Apparently not used at all in America. So uh, when we first did that in um, Westminster, it came back that the chips were coming out and there was chip loss and things were going wrong. And we said, well, no, hold on. <laughs> uh, so obviously we fed that back to robotics and, and they could change the, the, their AI to accept actually this is what it's meant to be like. Uh, and then the, the other one, which was quite amusing, speed humps. It was very, very upset and felt they were terrible hazards. And then you know, suddenly there was a speed <laughs> hump in the middle of the road. What on earth's going on? And we said, well, actually, it's designed to be there. Anyway, again, very simple. But um, so we had to sort of anglify it a little bit. But yeah, actually, it was very soon resolved and um, dealt with. So yeah, quite amusing, but it, it did the job. Absolutely. And, and on our side, you know, that kind of shows the the tricky nature of some aspects of artificial intelligence of, you know, it will only do exactly what you tell it to do. So some things that might seem like common sense, you know, it's a computer, it doesn't know, but it also means that, you know, you can do some tweaking, do some retraining of it, do some quality control modifications. And, you know, that's the importance of being able to have flexibility within your technology, you know, because you can run into these kind of situations where, you know, it doesn't understand what a speed hump is because it's been trained in a certain way. You know, it's important to anticipate those things and then also be able to have the processes in place to change them quickly so that you don't have the speed humps coming up as a, uh, a distress or anything like that. So you don't have speed humps in the US then, Stu? <laughs> um, we, we do, but not quite in the same format or size, I suppose, as the UK, which is what led to the problems. You know, we train it for, okay, you know, look for something that's one foot long or something like that. And that's how you know this isn't a uh, distortion in the pavement. But then you put it into a new market, a new paving type, and suddenly it's like, what is this? I haven't seen this before. <laughs> so same thing with the hot rolled asphalt. Um, you know, in the US, that would be, uh, you know, weathering of the road surface. It looks very similar. So being able to take it into a new area get access to that data and be able to retrain it based on that is uh, very important. And, you know, it, it's what, what leads to the technology getting better year over year is using it in different areas and getting input from experts in different markets, as you know, aside from the US. So FM Conway have obviously been an early adopter in the UK of this technology. What do you think is holding other highway maintenance contractors back from using this approach? 
I, I think it's a, a sort of reluctance to move away from tradi- uh, traditional standards. You know, UK PMS has sort of been established in you know in the UK for a long time. And there's an element of that's how it's always been done. So, you know, why, why are we changing it? At one point, it was how funding was released, you know, from central government. So, again, people were a bit nervous. If we move away from it, will we lose our funding? But, you know, we've discussed it. And as long as there's a robust assessment uh, system in place, you know, that, that won't uh, impact on it. So, yeah, I think it's just we've always done it that way. Why would we? Why would we change? Which I think, you know, we need to move away from. What about in terms of clients? Have they been uh, open to this new system or have they been a bit risk averse? I think initially there was, a yeah, it's new and it's American. Will that be different? And there was a little bit of that. So we tended to sort of offer it initially as trials. I mean, as an example, uh, Westminster, I think initially we did nine kilometres and they chose, you know, very urban parts, you know, something with a slightly high speed, you know, tried to give us different challenges just to see if uh, robotics did what it said on the tin. Uh, and it did. And, you know, that same year they said, right, do the whole network. So that tends to be the sort of slightly cautious um, lead into it. But I think the more the likes of Westminster and TfL and, you know, the other clients are using it, I think that will hopefully start to, you know, start the ball rolling that uh, people will be more confident to, to try the new technology. So, Stu, have you got a view on the things that are holding people back, what the barriers are for this technology? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I think that, you know, kind of like John was talking about, something that we've seen in the U.S. and, you know, across a lot of different markets is the apprehension to move away from tradition. You know, a lot of methodology within pavement management and pavement assessment has been utilized for years and years and decades and decades in some cases in the U.S. And going to, you know, somebody that has done it a certain way for a long time and saying, hey, you know, we have a new way to do it and it's using a new technology that you haven't utilized before you may not be familiar with yet, uh, it can be a big step for a lot of people, understandably. That's definitely the main hurdle that I've, I've seen within, you know, just changing systems and, and changing the way that you want to do things it can be, you know, very difficult for some people. And also figuring out how to marry the old with the new. You know, if you have a lot of data uh, from previous assessments that you've conducted you don't want to lose the ability to compare and contrast what you've done before to what you've done now. So being able to find ways to bridge you know, what they've done previously to new methodologies is very important. And you know, not just for building confidence within your clients, but also to uh, you know, make sure that they can still use that historical data properly. I guess a key issue for clients and contractors across the board is kind of sustainability and the low carbon footprint. So how does the system really feed into a more sustainable and low carbon approach to road and pavement maintenance? I mean, I can start that. I think it's it's really, again, just giving the clients and the decision makers accurate information. Uh, as I touched on before, you know, we can potentially prolong the life of a section of road. So we're not taking it up and relaying it and taking all the asphalt away and using virgin materials to, to, to put the new stuff back. But it also allows us to look at innovation. You know, there's a lot of things going on out there. You know, we use recycled materials. You know, we've just put 80% recycled materials back in Westminster. But we've got to be confident that, you know, where we're looking to use it is a suitable location and it's not just a short-term, um, you know, win. Uh, so, yeah, I think it's just given us accurate, you know, understanding exactly what our network's doing. And then from that, we can make key decisions and, as I say, potentially bring in recycled materials, single layer materials, things that will um, help with the carbon uh, footprints. And Stu, is there anything you'd like to add? 
think it is really a lot like what John was saying of, you know, opening up to new methods of pavement maintenance itself. Um, You know, of course, there are a lot of experts in the field that focus a lot on preventative maintenance rather than, you know, full scale, uh, you know, full depth reconstruction, things like that, which are a lot more both costly and, uh, you know, material heavy and resource heavy as well. Um, You know, I think that there are a lot of people doing really good work there, but it's helped, you know, utilizing this technology and being able to assess more frequently the roads that you're going to be doing maintenance on has really helped people use a more, you know, long-term sustainable approach rather than having to put all of their money into huge, you know, reconstruction projects. They're able to do more crack sealing. They're able to catch these distresses before they develop to something that you're getting citizen complaints about and things like that. And you're able to do, you know, just less intensive treatments that'll help keep the road in good condition for a long time rather than only being able to work on it once it's very bad. And and so, John, from your point of view, how do you feel feel the system could be further developed and advanced? Well, Stu knows I'm going to, the first thing I'm going to say is footway assessments. Basically, I go to the clients and say, right, this is great. It's going to tell you what your carriageways are doing. And I think in the UK, we're much more dependent on footways. They drive everywhere in the UK, in the US. Uh, we tend to do less so. So that is the first question. But obviously, it, there's a challenge here, yeah? because if you, you consider what footways, you know, the different materials you, you have on footways throughout the UK and throughout the world, it's it's uh, a lot more complicated. And I'll let Stu tell you where we are on that. But I guess then the other obvious things, are the other highway assets, so the casualty markings, you know, autonomous vehicles and potentially and are going to start using carriageway markings as their way of finding their way around. So we, we need to find good good ways of making sure that the markings are to a condition that, you know, will allow that. And then street furniture, uh, vehicle restraint, you know, there's, there's all those assets. Basically, it's the same drive through. You know, at the moment, we're concentrating on when we get the survey results to look at the carriageway. But while we're doing that, it's also looking at the street lights, it's looking at the street furniture, so, yeah, to me, that that's probably the next step. Stu, do you want to let us know what you're doing over there? Absolutely. So, really, I think in development, of course, you know, John and kind of what, what John and, you know, what our partners want from the technology is very important for where the product development goes because we we are not specifically the people that are doing the pavement maintenance or anything like that. So it's it's important to hear from on the ground, you know, this is what we need to do the work better. And really in, t- in terms of product development and, you know, taking it, it further, there's kind of two different directions you can go. You can either go more in depth on the pavement assessment, which we've done partially in expanding the assessment capabilities on roadways and on carriageways of being able to say, identify specific distresses rather than just coming up with a conditional rating Uh, things of that nature, or you can go outwards and look at more types of assets as well. So like John is talking about going into sidewalk assessments, going into lane markings, going into street furniture, like, you know, fire hydrants or lampposts and things of that nature. They're all things that are possible within the realm of artificial intelligence, you know, the same way that you can Uh, train a computer to look at a pothole and identify it. You can do the same thing with a fire hydrant, you know, things of that nature, signage, all that kind of stuff. Really, I mean, the main thing, like John was talking about, is that it is time-consuming and difficult to train it on those different things. You know, sidewalks in particular, there's different types of distresses that are going to be present. There's different considerations to have. You have to be looking for trip hazards, 
all that kind of stuff. So it's it's a uh, a time consuming process to get there, but it's definitely all areas that we are interested in and in working into uh, more so because. Um, at this point, it, it feels like we have a lot of technological capabilities within the world of pavements themselves. So now it's kind of time to start looking outside of that. And how do we help you know cities expand their use of artificial intelligence and these methodologies into other areas that they have needs as well, not just getting deeper and deeper into pavements? So it sounds like there's lots of room for further innovation, but taking things a little bit further... What scope is there for the system to be integrated with other smart city platforms or Internet of Things technology to help urban spaces better meet the needs of communities? I mean, at the moment, uh, we, we, part of the robotics offering is a, a platform called Roadway. And a lot of the clients actually, it's very intuitive. Uh, you can filter on, the, you know, we mentioned the one to fives. You can turn off the ones, turn off the twos, you know, focus into what you're interested uh, in. But, you know, a lot of clients obviously do have their own asset management systems and obviously want to make sure that that data is fed into that. So part of the um, package is to give us a shape file. You know, once we've uh, finished the assessment and it's gone through the AI and whatever, yes, it comes back as a shape file, which is a very flexible file that, you know, we've already integrated it into Symology and Confirm, which are two of the sort of very standard asset management systems that... Um, are used by local authorities. So, yeah, it, by standardising these files, it means that really it can go to into any sort of um, platform. Yeah, we, we've got a system we use called Map16, uh, which you know has many layers, you know, looking at when your drainage was last done and, you know, what the condition of uh, the various parts of the assets were. But obviously this is perfect because it will just be another layer of that uh, platform. So, yeah, the shapefile, I think, is the key because it's a sort of almost a standard now that will go into any system that is wanted. What about Stu? Do you have any views on where it could be going or whether it could go into a digital twin or things like that in the future? Yeah, so um, from our side in terms of, uh, you know, kind of areas that we're interested in, things like that, the main two ways that I could see it improving within those uh, integrations is in, in two directions, kind of similar to the general product development is in the speed of assessments and then the public visibility of those assessments. So it's something that we've seen a really interesting integration with is in public messaging. Um, Because our roadway platform is designed to be kind of more easily decipherable on the surface than some other, you know, pavement assessment outputs, you know, you can tell where the problems are on the road network. We've actually included the ability to embed uh, maps of the road network in a public setting, so on a, a city's website or on a you know a highway authority's website and things like that, so that their citizens and their constituents can see what road work is being done, where the areas of concern are within the network, and within that, being able to kind of add that public messaging side to the uh, pavement assessments, which usually you know constituents don't have that much visibility into. You know, it's something that's handled internally. And then the road work is done and they might release, you know, uh, governments might release capital improvement plans or, you know, their major road reconstruction efforts. And of course, they have to close down the roads. But being able to see in sort of real time what's going to be happening within their city can be very important. And then, you know, the main way to improve upon that is by just decreasing the amount of time that it takes to go from data collection to publicly available analysis, pretty much. So the idea of having even faster turnaround. Currently, we turn around data in about 30 days from the last day of collection. But aside from 
both improving the accuracy and the amount of assets that the technology can see. The other side of it is increasing the speed that it can assess it all at and getting closer and closer to real time so that you can you know, look at the roads and then almost immediately be able to see where the, where the problem areas are, communicate that to the public and put in place plans to uh, address it. So looking ahead, how important is it for the highway maintenance industry to find more modern approaches to the planning and delivery of work? Oh, very. I mean, it's a changing world. I mean, obviously, there's COVID and things that have impacted on how how the network is used now. But, you know, we mentioned early emphasis on carbon reduction, uh, pressures on budgets, you know, as I say, new world, new challenges. So really, we can't really just carry on doing it as we've always done it. You know, I think we've got to look at finding better ways of, uh, you know, just making sure we're maximising the funding uh, and uh, keeping the asset to a best condition it can with uh, with the constraints given. And what do you think the implications are in the long term if the highway sector doesn't embrace this kind of new technology? Um, well, reputational. You know, I think it's funny when you look at roads, they always revert back to the Romans. And, um, <laughs> you know, we've, we've got to keep moving. And, and you know, to, to sort of, and to be fair, you know, the UK BMS, they're not going out with notebooks, they're going out with tablets and whatever. But even so, it is still, you know, a, a, a person who's had you know, whatever training, but, you know, it's it's inconsistent. And I think we've got to find ways that we can be sure that the, the information we're getting will, you know, inform, big deci- you know, the right decisions. You know, if, if we don't do it, the long-term durability of the network, you know, if, if we're not spending that money wisely, we're going to sort of move back to the reactive. I mean, that, you know, as I mentioned right back at the beginning, reactive maintenance is the worst way of maintaining a road. You know, the damage is done, you know, you're just sort of patching it up. We've got to try and move away from that and make sure it's planned and then those potholes will never appear in the first place. So again, just moving technology on that way. Sustainability, you know, obviously the clients have all got some very aggressive targets now, quite rightly, to um, reduce carbon. So again, we've got to move with that and make sure that uh, we're maximising that. And yeah, just being agile, you know, I think with COVID, you know, all these cycle lanes going in and people changing modes of transport, you know, we've got to be agile and adapt to make sure the network meets the the needs. And Stu, anything you'd like to add? Yeah, I I think that kind of offering up my standard alternate uh, perspective on the US market, in a lot of ways, I, I think that our needs are kind of more dire than what we've seen in the UK, largely because of uh, the lack of funding that I've seen for local uh, governments to handle their infrastructure. So in a lot of ways, it, it's kind of a, a matter of, you know, maintaining the infrastructure that we have in the state that it is. We need to be more innovative than we currently are. You know, if we continue down the path that we uh, are going in, just based on the amount of money that local governments have to maintain their roads, they aren't going to be able to keep up. So it's very important to find areas that we can bring in a bit more uh, efficiency, you know, a bit more ability to anticipate these needs and be able to use lower cost maintenance methods. Because if all the local governments are doing is reacting, like John was saying, doing a reactive approach, they're eating through their money much more quickly. And that leaves them without the ability to kind of, uh, you know, keep things in a good condition. All it is is fixing things whenever they're already very bad. So it's leading to, you know, poor quality of life for the citizens that are living there and also a big strain on an already strained budget in a lot of cases. So being able to find ways to help them with that 
get them information faster, and do it in a more uh, cost-effective way is very important here. Great. Well, thank you both for joining us today. It is really interesting to understand how artificial intelligence is changing how maintenance work is delivered. And it seems that there are some real opportunities for innovation in the industry going forward. Well, that concludes another episode of the Engineers Collective. Thank you all for listening in. And I hope you join us again soon for more insight into the world of engineering. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you in association with Bentley Systems. With digital technology changing the way the world lives, it's time to apply digital technology on infrastructure projects to close the productivity gap with other industries. Bentley invites you to gauge your organization's progress by taking one of our going digital assessments. Work with a partner you can trust and accelerate your pace if possible by going digital with Bentley at bentley.com forward slash going hyphen digital hyphen rail.